Welcome to our Good Friday service here. Uh, as we enter into uh, a, a weekend that's really the highlight of the year for those of us who follow Jesus. We, we celebrate in two days what happened in a garden. There was a garden tomb that was discovered empty and that has revolutionized the world. Let me read for you some words. John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. We read a little bit later in verse 14 that when Jesus actually physically appeared to Mary, she didn't, she didn't even realize who it was. In fact, it says that she thought he was the gardener of the, of the garden, of the tomb there. This is the garden of the resurrection. This is the place where Jesus bodily rose. He wasn't just resuscitated like someone whose heart stopped. His body was transformed into a resurrected body, immortal, imperishable, incorruptible. It's the first time this has ever happened in the history of the world. Jesus opened a door that had remained closed since the first death of the first man. He did something utterly unique here. And what's so unique is that he, he's bringing about the first signs of new creation. Not just doing the same, but actual new creation going on here. So you see, Jesus' resurrection, it's spoken of throughout the rest of the Bible as the first fruits of the, of the resurrection. Just like if you were to go out to a tree in an orchard and see the very first fruit that has come, it's evidence that it's, it's going to be a harvest. There's going to be a good harvest. So Jesus' resurrection, it's the first fruits of the general resurrection. Why is this so important? Because what happens in this garden, it's the breaking in of what Later in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21.5, we read this, and they heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, I am making all things new. See, God has declared that one day he will set everything right. He will vanquish all evil, and he will set all things to right. It reminds me of something that happens. Uh, have you guys seen the Lord of the Rings series? Or maybe you've read the books, J.R.R. Tolkien's classic three, uh, three novels. And the, the last novel is The Return of the King. And after the final battle at the very end of The Return of the King, there's this um, kind of fascinating moment. Um, this idea of Tolkien is, is trying to paint a picture of kind of cosmic renewal. Um, evil has been vanquished from Middle-earth. All things are, are set right, and Tolkien describes this, and I think it's best captured by like one of my favorite lines in the whole book. And it, it was a line by, by Frodo, the main character who's carrying the ring to destroy it. Frodo's companion, you remember his name? Oh, I love that you guys know that. That's awesome. You guys probably know that more than some Bible trivia. That's... <laughs> Samwise Gamgee, right? 
So they have destroyed the ring in the mountain, and, and Sam is utterly exhausted. He is sure that he is going to die. And, and he's, he's lying there, and uh, he, he just passes out, sure of his impending death. But he's miraculously saved by these flying eagles, and, and, and days sometime later, he, he wakes up. And what he wakes up to are all of these people he, who he was positive they were dead because the last time he saw them, it looked like there was no hope. And he has this great line. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Or as Tolkien's good friend C.S. Lewis put it once, he said, once we actually have new creation, he said, it will work backwards and turn all agonies into glories. Yes, everything will come untrue. And on Easter, in that garden, the garden tomb, new creation started. Everything started coming untrue with the first fruits, with, with Jesus. But, but, before we get to that garden in two days, I want us to go back to a couple other gardens. Because I think that as we, as we pause, when that we'll be able to actually come into Easter in two days here, and we'll be able to celebrate on a more explosive level because we'll see what exactly it was that really took place by looking at these other gardens to help us see and inform what happened in this garden. So go back with me. In fact, to the very first garden ever. Genesis chapter 2, we read this. Then the Lord God formed man of dust, from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Then the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he uh, had formed out of the ground. The Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and sort of a mysterious thing here that mentions the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, then the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden uh, to cultivate it, to keep it. See, the story of man starts in a garden. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree in the garden you may freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil you shall not eat. So there's a forbidden tree we discover in here. Well, why is it forbidden? He says, for in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. The actual, if you were to translate this sort of word for word, it says, for in the day that you eat it, in dying you will die. It's this, what does that mean? It's, it's sort of odd. In dying you will die. And of course, we all know, if you've read this story, what happens on page three we're introduced to this creature in the garden, serpent, the snake, and we're not told any background about him, how he got there. All we know is he is a creature who is in rebellion against God, and his goal is to, to deceive our first parents, and he does that into doing what? He deceives them into acting independently of their God, of taking the forbidden fruit from the forbidden tree and take and eat. They consumed it. And when they rebel against God, sin and all of the consequences of rebellion like floods into their lives, 
floods into their relationships, floods into the world around them, and everything is corroded by their rebellion. But God honors man's free choice in that first garden. And man chooses to turn from God's love in order to become his own king. His own God is the idea here. Genesis 3.18, we read this is the consequence. Okay, now pay attention to this. This is the consequence of a life of saying, I don't want to do anything. God gives him this sort of constant reminder that he'll never be free from. Verse 18 says, it, it's speaking of the garden, God's good creation. It will produce what? Interesting. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, but you will still eat from the plants uh, and the field. A couple weeks ago, um, my, one of my daughters, Serena, and I uh, went on a little bike ride. Last, last summer, we, we moved into a different neighborhood, and so the kids have been kind of like anxious for it to get warm to kind of explore, like, what's the area like around us and all that sort of thing. And so the kids have been walking over. There's, a, there's this area that has some trails in between our neighborhood and the next one, and there's like walking trails and biking trails, and uh, one of these, you go kind of like down a hill, and there's this creek there and some trees. It's really, really pretty. And so she, it, it, this was one of these nice days. Remember, they were like really nice days that we've had kind of rarely here. Uh, this is about a month ago. It was a beautiful day, and she wanted to go on a bike ride. So we went out in the garage, got our bikes. She knew where she was going because she'd been there, and so she's showing me. So we go, we go down this hill, and we're riding around. And, and, and we're, I don't know, a half mile, mile out. So I said, okay, let's, let's go back home. And so we turn around, and we're riding, and we're going up this hill. I was writing, it's like I was writing in quicksand. It was like, I'm like, why is this so hard? And I'm just like sweating. I'm thinking, I thought, I, I got to stop, Serena. I got to walk m- my bike. I just can't make up the hill. So I get off the bike and I look, and my back tire is dead flat. I mean, just flat as can be. That's why it was so hard to ride, you know? And, and as I look at it, I see it is just covered in what these, I just found out, they're called this goat head thistles. Have you seen these things? They're horrible. <laughs> I, it, like, Satan had to have created those things. They're just, and, and, and you can't even get them out easily, you know? And then someone was telling me, like, oh, you know, they have, like, uh, goat thistle-resistant tubes. And I'm like, thanks for telling me that now. I did not helpful now. I don't, you know, we had to walk our bikes home. And, you know, we're getting, like, needle-nose pliers to pull these goat head thorns out of the tire. But I, I'm reminded of this Genesis 3.18 where he says, you're still going to work the ground, but now it's going to produce thorns for you. And so there's this really interesting thing that the image of thorns, ever since then, the image of thorns have become this symbolic reminder of the consequences of our rebellion against God. A reminder of what trying to be your own God will feel like in a day-to-day basis. And so our first parents were forced to leave the garden, and thorns will function like this physical, daily reminder to them of what life is like when I do it, like Frank Snatcher said, my way. (laughs) Seeking my will over God's will, the painful existence of trying to be my own God. My will, not yours be done. That's what thistles, thorns, symbolize. Many years later, there was a different man in a different garden, Garden of 
Gethsemane. In fact, uh, the night Jesus was betrayed, right before that, he had last supper, and he went out into a garden, and he was betrayed in a garden. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, Paul says that the first Adam chose his will over the Father. But Paul speaks of Jesus as the final Adam. Interesting, isn't that? He says Jesus is the final Adam, but the difference is that Jesus comes into this garden to actually commune with God. He comes into this garden, the difference is that he, he's seeking to put God's will in front of his own. It's the exact opposite picture of what we have in the first garden. In fact, facing the, the horror of the, of the cross, Jesus prays this, this is in Matthew 26, he goes, to, he goes with his friends there in the garden, and he goes a little further by himself, and he prays, and we read verse 39, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And this astounding thing, yet, not as I will, but as you will. And then he comes back, finds his friends, they're sleeping. He goes back a second time, verse 42, My father, if this cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. He goes back to his friends. They're sleeping again. He goes, we're told, and he left them again, verse 44, and he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Do you see this? Do you see what's going on here? Jesus prayed not just to know God's will. He actually prayed, I want to do it. I want to center my life. I want to do what it is that you have for me, which for him was to become the suffering servant. And from this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is taken up the hill into the city of Jerusalem, and before he goes to the cross, do you remember what happens? He's crowned with a crown of, huh, a crown of thorns. Do you see this? Do you see what's going on here? Thorns, that, that symbol of the first garden's uh, humanity's attempt to be their own king, the symbol of our rebellion, and symbol of our conflict, the thorns of our sin are, are crushed down on the head of Jesus. Something like this. And it's a picture, because see, a king always has a crown. And that picture, that symbol of me doing life my way, that's been a reminder to all of humanity, he takes it fully and it's pressed down into his skull. We read in Matthew 27, um, we'll st I'm not going to read 29 yet, let me give you some context. Uh, verse 27 says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium. They gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him naked. Uh, they put a scarlet robe, scarlet's the uh, color of royalty, they're mocking him, uh, on him. And then in verse 29, and they twisted together crown of thorns, and set it on his head. Okay, do you see the picture? Do you see what the author is trying to get us to see? The connections he's trying to see us make. They put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again, we're told. Why did this have to happen? Because of the first garden. See, we wanted to rule ourselves to be king of our own lives, and kings wear crowns. 
Jesus had the image of the consequences of our rebellion pressed down into him. This is the consequence of wanting to be your own king, and Jesus took it for you, and he took it for me. So you see what's building here, but there's more to this picture. Um, in the first garden, as we think back, but there were, there were lots of trees. We read that's, you know, there's many, many trees, and they had access to all of them, but, but there was one forbidden tree. It's described as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you say, what's that about? Well, up until this point, um, God had always been the one who defined what was good and what was evil. In fact, the first chapter, it says he created, and every time he created, remember what he said? It was, it's good, it's good, it's good, okay? Like seven times. So he, the author's building, so who is it that determines what's good and what's evil? God does. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that attempt to say, I, I'm going to be in that role. I'm going to decide what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong, what is permissible, what is not permissible in my own life. And so the, the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when Adam embraces it, when he uses it, it becomes to the first Adam like his flag planted in the ground, declaring the word that every two-year-old is really good at screaming when they're playing with toys. What is it? Mine. Right? Mine. I'm the owner. This is mine. This is, this is what the forbidden tree becomes all about to Adam. So when Jesus leaves the Garden of Gethsemane, he also goes to a tree. And he embraces it, but it's the opposite of a tree that says mine. Galatians 3.13, we read this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 21. And what's interesting is the Jews made no distinction between a cross and a tree, so that they automatically applied to crucified victims this terrible statement in the law that says anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. See, the cross was necessary because of the first forbidden tree. It left us, think of it this way, it left us with a legal debt with God, and it left us dead in our rebellion so that we were unable to even attempt to pay off that debt. Remember, if you eat of this tree in dying you will die. But listen to what Jesus' tree accomplished. Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your sins, he says, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning he's writing to Gentiles who weren't circumcised. Like, you're not even in the covenant people of Israel. When we were in that state, God made us alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled. Now look at this phrase here. Think about this. Having canceled the charge, store that away in your mind for a second. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away. How? This is interesting. By nailing it to the cross, I'll stop right there. We could read a lot more, and there's a lot in there. But here's the question. He says this, the charge of my indebtedness to God was nailed to the cross. Now, 
here's the question. What was nailed to the cross? Besides the obvious question of Jesus, something else was nailed to the cross. It was above his head. It was the legal charge of what he was indebted to, to the powers that be. And you remember there's one thing written on it. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, that's who he was, and then his charge, claiming to be king of the Jews. Do you see this? Do you see what he's trying to get us to understand here? Pilate had made this sign, nailed to the cross. The charge against Jesus was that he claimed to be the rightful king. Those are my charges too. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, your charge is your sin. Like, what am I guilty of as far as sin goes? Like, the list is long, okay? Many, many things, I promise you. But it all boils down to this idea of me trying to be the king of my life. Me trying to have ultimate authority and responsibility. Me thinking that I am the rightful person in charge. And then I use that power to serve my own interests. And that's what the wreck of my life looks like when I go that direction. This is my charge against me. This is my indebtedness. So the finished, and, and, and this is what I really want us to see here, is that this, this tree represents my claim to define what's right. The cross speaks to my deep sinfulness. Like, this is what we do on Good Friday times. Why do we do this? Because we want to understand, like, is it, was, was this really needed? Or, I mean, is this sort of like gosh, a cross, it's a little gory. I mean, come on, that's, you know, is that too much? No. If you understand the gravity of your condition, if I understand the gravity of my condition, the cross speaks to this indebtedness. And the finished work of the cross, it gets in our face, doesn't it? The finished work of the cross reminds us of our grave circumstances that we were in. That it took the Son of God coming among us and staring our collective evil and sin and rebellion and guilt and injustice in the eye and then let it do its worst to him. Take him to the grave. So the cross speaks of how I have personally participated in evil and how my heart is bent toward me, myself, doing what I want, my agenda. But... According to this passage, the cross also declares that the consequences of my situation have been nailed to and paid for on that, on that cross. See, without the cross, I would suggest, without the cross, you, you will constantly live under the shadow of your past. And it doesn't take very long to think about the things that we have done. And if you have much self-awareness, you know it's, there's a lot of messed up stuff, brokenness in your life. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but look, I mean, if, if, you, if you knew what was really in my heart at times about other people, like you wouldn't even want to be my friend. And I go, man, actually, that might be true. <laughs> but here's the thing. If you knew what was in my heart at times toward people, you wouldn't want me to be your pastor. See, we are, we are a people of the broken. We are broken people who gather around the cross because we realize I am deeply broken and deeply sinful, and yet it has been utterly paid for. It was nailed, that my charge, me trying to be in charge, it was nailed above. Every time I look at that sign above his head, I think, oh yeah, 
He paid for that. And that's at the core of my problem. He paid for the consequences of that. The finished work of the cross, it is a message of hope. It is a message of grace for those who live under this cloud of guilt in their lives. See, you can't fix what went wrong in the garden. Only he can. So while the cross confronts you with your deep sinfulness, the cross also puts its arm around you and and it comforts you with the reality that we are the object of God's love. We are the object of God's grace under Jesus' tree. So tonight, coming to the cross, because all of us come to the cross, that's what we do tonight. Maybe, maybe you have a renewed sense of humility, of confession. Maybe you need to do some business with God tonight. For some of you, these next few moments might be the most important moments of your weekend. And I don't know where you're at tonight, Um, maybe you need to be confronted by the truth of the cross about some things in your life. Or or, or maybe maybe you need to be comforted, um, have the cross put its arm around you by the hope that is there. And, And I trust that the Spirit knows exactly what it is that you need and that I need tonight and that and that he will do that. Tonight we're gonna have at the end some of our pastors along the front and be here available for prayer. And if, this, if it's something, that if, if you would like prayer, we would love to do that, and you don't need to come to a pastor, you can do that by yourself at your seat, but maybe you need to do business with God tonight. One last image from the garden that I want us to reflect on. Back in Genesis, our, our very first parents uh, in the Garden of Eden, what was the action that sealed the deal on their rebellion? What did they do? They took the fruit, took the fruit, and they, they, as the text says, they took and ate, right? They took the fruit and they took and ate. Jesus' last supper, he's celebrated before he goes out to his garden. He's in this upper room in the inner city of Jerusalem, and he's with his 12 apprentices, and they're celebrating the Passover meal. And we read this in Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and the cup was filled with the fruit of a vine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you see it? Do you see what's going on here? See, Adam took and ate the fruit of a tree that brought death. What does Jesus do here? Well, Jesus, the last Adam, takes this drink from the fruit of the vine, gives it to them, and says, take and drink. But this fruit, he says, it works the opposite way. It brings life. He says, this drink of the fruit of the vine symbolizes my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus shares with his friends 
and with us. The fruits of the earth, bread and wine. And what they symbolize, his death on the cross, reverses the effects of the first fruit. Why? Because what happens in the garden stays in the garden. Listen to the garden language of Revelation 22. Looking forward to that final new creation when it's fully here. Revelation 22 verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. It was flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. That's from the garden. Why? The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And see, different than J.R.R. Tolkien's character, Sam, we won't ask, is everything sad going to come untrue, what's happened to the world? We will say, everything sad has come untrue. Look at the world. Look at new creation. And here's the key. Here's the linchpin. All of that will happen. Why? Because of what was accomplished on Good Friday. Even then, we will look back and remember that's what was accomplished. New creation. Look at this. All that was accomplished because of Good Friday. But then we do something else. Between now and then, we do something else to remember it. We become participants. We participate in the story. We take the fruits of the earth that Jesus gave that reverse the old one. We take bread and we take juice and we take and eat. Just like we were sitting there with Jesus and his 12 apprentices, we become participants in the story because we realize it is our story. I'm going to ask our ushers to um, come and in a moment to begin distributing the elements uh, of communion, of what we take, the, the fruit of the ground, of the bread and the wine. Um, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, don't ever forget. Don't ever forget Good Friday because it's the linchpin to new creation. And communion isn't for everyone. Communion, communion is for followers of King Jesus. Uh, if, if you trust King Jesus alone for your acceptance by God, communion is for you. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians that when we take communion, we should examine ourselves. And so we will do that. Parents, if you're here with kids, you can help them get the elements if, if they have made that commitment to, to follow Jesus. And then please hold the elements, everyone. Uh, we're going to worship 
hold the elements. When everyone has received, we will stand and take the elements together. Would you stand with me if you're able? 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, For what I received from the Lord, I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink. And then he said, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's continue to proclaim that in song. A benediction. Go in the name of King Jesus and live in the confident peace that's made possible by the goodness of this Friday. Amen? Amen. Love you guys. See you Easter morning.